Hi, and welcome to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. I'm your host, Josh Campson. Today's guest is Nicole Davis, and she is running to become the next judge of the Court of Common Pleas of Montgomery County. Uh, pretty good chance, because I think it seems like she's going to be running unopposed. So we talk about her background. Uh, we talk about what it means to be a judge, why someone would want to be a judge, considering they have to wear the same outfit every day, and you know what she thinks the qualities are in a judge that are the most important, and whether or not they're the same qualities I think are the most important. So take a listen. This is a really good interview. Um, really gives you a peek behind the motivation for someone to run for office, you know, someone that's run for office before, it's grueling, it's difficult, it's tough on your family, it's tough on your friends. Um, but I think, you know, this is someone that uh, is going to be able to get through it. And I think it's going to be an interesting episode to listen to and a different kind of insight than what we've had on before. So take a listen. I hope you enjoy it. If you do, remember to go into iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast, rate it five stars, leave us a review. It really does help the show. And if you have any complaints, remember to send those to the Montgomery Bar Association um, because we're only accepting five-star reviews at this point. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoy the show. Nicole, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Josh. Good so, afternoon. Nicole, yeah, good afternoon. Is it afternoon? I don't know. This is like my fourth yeah. cup of coffee. <laughs> I, uh, normally, I'm at two, but I got a newborn, so I'm. This oh, is congratulations! Thing, thank you. This is the only thing keeping me standing. I'm at a standing desk, so if I don't drink this, I'll just if I topple over, uh, <laughs> call my office because they know how to get a hold of me. <laughs> okay, got it. I remember those days. Yeah, that was a while ago for you, right? You've got teenagers. I do. I do. I have a. Uh, 15-year-old who will be 16 next month and an 18-year-old. And I have two adult stepdaughters who are 22 and 23 this year. And so your 18-year-old on the way to college? Yes, he is. Where's he going? We don't know yet. Um, we have about five or six, six acceptances that we are choosing from, and he is also looking, um, waiting on a few more. So we are looking at you know the best place for him and the finances and all of that. And do you want him to go as far away as possible or as close as possible? <laughs> you know, keep the youngest one close, send the oldest one further away. You know what? I went away to college. Um, I went about seven hours away from my home. And I think it was the best thing for me. It really helped me to grow up and just see a different perspective. And I think it'll be the best thing for him as well. Um, so it's not about me pushing him away, but I think there's so many benefits that he'll gain from going away, even if he comes back after undergrad. Where did you do your undergrad? Spelman College in Atlanta. And would you drive or fly the seven hours? Um, we drove. We drove. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went to My University of Pittsburgh, so I'm used to that. I'm oh, sorry. okay. Yep, yep. Mm -hmm. Were we saying your parents didn't like to fly? No. So we, you know, packed up the, I think it was a station wagon at the time, at least in the beginning, and uh, they would drive me up every every fall. My parents don't like to fly either. They, uh, my dad and stepmom flew to Vegas. It was like their second time on a plane in the last 20 years. This is obviously okay. pre-COVID. Pre and there was a lot of discussion ahead of time about flying. <laughs> yes. And then they come back and all of a sudden they're experts in flight. I'm like about to go on a bar association trip. My dad says to me, uh, now keep in mind, I fly you know, pre-COVID. I'm flying once a quarter right. every other month. And he says to me, now remember, you got to take your belt off before you go through security. <laughs> Dad's always got to make sure we know some good pieces of wisdom. Exactly. Well, I blew his <laughs> mind when I explained TSA pre-check and that I didn't have to take my belt off. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> you so. one-upped him. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I outdated him. Yeah. So, so you're running for judge. Yes. And I, 
tell me how you came to that decision. Did you just decide, you know what, I am just so sick of picking out outfits every day <laughs> that I think a robe will be the most flattering <laughs> option? Um, or did you decide like, I'm tired of, you know, having to start working early um, and working late. And so like, might as well go in and be a judge. I'm just kidding to all the judges listening. <laughs> um, no, none of that. Um, you know, it was several years ago as I've gone through my years of practice and, you know, most of my practice being in the courtroom um, as a litigator, I've been in front of a lot of judges. I've had a lot of experience with the bench. And I've also looked around and seen, you know, where the needs are. Um, my whole goal in being an attorney and being in legal practice was to see where I could be of greatest help and greatest impact, which is why I chose the career path that I did in the law. And so after about 20 years of doing this, I believe now I have the skill set and the life experience and perspective that now leads me to make the greatest impact from the bench. What do you think will be the things you can do in terms of impact from the bench? Well, I think, you know, it's some of the things that I've experienced with the wonderful judges that I've been in front of, right? Um, I believe that my experience, first off, as a litigator and having a lot of courtroom and trial experience will allow me to, you know, properly and effectively uh, preside over the cases that I will have before me, will give the attorneys an experience in a courtroom where they will be able to try their case. Um, being able to take my experience and judge the evidence fairly, give individuals their fair day in court, um, recognize the humanity of everyone that comes into the courtroom, which sometimes gets lost. And I mean, from no matter what side of the V you're on in a case or what side of the courtroom you come on, or what whatever your background is, I've, I've, my experience both professionally and personally gives me a unique um, perspective, I think, that will allow me to have a great impact on the bench in my cases. Unique how? Um, you know, again, going back to that humanity, I've had some experiences um, that I think are unique as a prosecutor that have allowed me a lot of time, not only with victims, not only with law enforcement and witnesses, but also with defendants, particularly in my federal practice. Um, and it allowed me to gain a lot of insight um, about life experiences, about why um people feel the way they feel about law enforcement and about the government and having to sit and listen to all of that without judgment. And really, it really gave me a lot to think about. And I think it really grew me as an individual and as a practitioner. And I think it's those things, in addition to, you know, all the work I've done in the community and what have you, that will allow me to, to be effective and bring that perspective to the bench when I'm not only considering evidence, but considering the humans, the people that are before me. Yeah, I think that'll be good. I mean, I, I have the important question here of what do you think is the most important quality in a judge and why is it starting on time? <laughs> um, I do think starting on time is an important quality for a judge. Um, you know, I have spent a lot of time um, early on, more so in my career, waiting in courtrooms um, and waiting in courtrooms <laughs> and being ready at 8.30, 9 o'clock and waiting. Um, and then also seeing the backlog of what happens when that waiting occurs and things start late and end early and all that. So that's not certainly not something I'm going to bring to the bench. Um, I am a hard worker. I've always been a hard worker. And so, you know, that is important. It's important to attorneys. And I think, you know, as a good judge, you all you think about the parties, the witnesses, the defendants. But you also think about the attorneys and what kind of courtroom they want to be in to practice law and try their cases. 
So that was kind of a canned answer that I gave you. If you, if I had not given that, what's your opinion on what, uh, what the most important quality is in a judge? I think it's, you know, temperament, but also it, but fairness and objectivity. Um, you really have to work hard to make sure that you don't bring your biases and preconceived notions to the bench, just like we tell jurors, right? You know, um, we have to be even more careful about that because of the oath that we take, you know, as practitioners and as jurists to do that. And, you know, recognizing that our decisions, that the decisions of judges, I'm saying ours a little presumptuously, right? Yeah, um, yeah have an impact, not just on that individual, but that family and on that community. And you need a judge who takes all of that into account. Yeah, a bit presumptive. A bit presumptuous. Yeah, no, (laughs) not even a primary yet. And you're already, I noticed in the background, is that hanging on the hook there? Is that a robe or is that? Uh, No, 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 it is not a robe. (laughs) There's no no video here, so nobody can see this. But uh, and now my understanding is that there's no one. This is a county level position, and my understanding is that there's no one that is filed to run beside you. That is correct. Okay, so freebie, hopefully, right? We'll see. Yeah, right. Still going to work for every vote, obviously. I'm not going to have you say freebie, um, but I'm also not going to call you judge. So wait till you get on the bench, and then we can go from there. Absolutely. Now, do you think you'll be slotted with family law, which is where many new judges end up? I may be, you know, it's wherever the president judge um, decides there's a need and where I'm the best fit to start. Um, I'll be ready to go re- regardless. Serve at the pleasure of the president judge, so to speak, right? Absolutely. Yeah. When I worked for a judge who then got indicted, and that's for another podcast, uh, we then had to serve for the president judge. And she loved hearing <laughs> that. She loved reminding <laughs> everyone that they uh, served at the pleasure of the president judge. <laughs> but that's another county far away and another time. There you go. Uh, so you went to college in Atlanta. Did you stay down there for law school? I did not. I uh, traveled farther up, uh, 95, and went to Northeastern Law School in uh, Boston. All right. Give me your uh, have And my dad drove me there, too. <laughs> give, me, give me a have it, yeah, down in a car. Let me hear <laughs> Let me hear your best impression of a Boston accent. You, you were there for three Josh. years. You can't, you can't order a lobster roll. You can't... Uh, <laughs> You can't pack a car, nothing. There's no place to find parking. There you go. <laughs> there we go. Now, did you have, Is it was it like The Departed? Did you have two accents? You know, you're working somewhere in the city uh, during during the weekends and after hours, and you got one accent, and then you're working during the day uh, in, in a fancy law school, and you got a different accent. I'm, no. I'm kidding. <laughs> you grew up around here, pre- right? No, I grew up in Florida, actually. So you've lived all over. I have. And I 20 years ago, I settled on Pennsylvania, and I've been here ever since. So do you say water or water? I say water. But my kids probably say water, especially water ice. <laughs> do they correct you? They do not. My oldest son is two and a half, and I say water. Uh, because when living in Pittsburgh for many years, I beat it out of myself. <laughs> and he says, it's water, not water. Oh, <laughs> that's cute. So after law school, was it? I know you were a prosecutor. Did you go right to being a prosecutor from law school? I did. So um, Northeastern is sort of like Drexel in that it's a co-op school. And so during law school, I had four different internships. And my 2L summer, I was at the uh, Philadelphia DA's office. And thankfully, I got an offer to return. 
And so that's what brought me here and it's kept me here. Why Philly? Um, I wanted to be in a large city. I wanted to be in the Northeast. I've always wanted to live up here and uh, finally made my way here. I wanted to be in a place where I could be of of use and get a lot of experience, but also, again, be of impact. And I believe that there was work that could be done here and I could be helpful to that work. And so that's why I chose Philadelphia and I was excited to get the offer and um, and be in that office. And did you go from there to the U.S. Attorney's Office? I did not. I actually took a break. Um, my kids were small at the time, about three and five. And uh, it was a little interesting to be prepping uh, for three trials that might any given one of them might start on that Monday and, uh, you know, doing that all weekend and what have you with two kids on your lap. And so I took a little bit of a break, um, but I didn't leave the law completely. I went to Temple Law School and worked as the senior director of career planning in that office and uh, advised law students on preparing for internships and jobs and kind of figuring out what they wanted to do with their lives. So I did that for about three years before I went to the U.S. Attorney's Office. Oh, that's very interesting. And you didn't want to stay and keep doing that? I loved that job, but I was also young and I wanted to return to practice. My kids at that point were a little bit older, a little bit more self-sufficient, and I really missed the practice of law. And um, at that time, we were transitioning. Um, Zane Miminger was coming on board at the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, under Attorney General Eric Holder, thought it was a great time and great opportunity. And thankfully, they were interested in looking at former prosecutors um, and not necessarily everyone coming from a big law firm. So uh, right time, right place. And I was able to get a position. Nice. So let's talk about your time at Temple uh, just for a minute, if we could. Mm -hmm. One of the things I do on the side is, you know, we're, I'm the chair of the ABA Standing Committee on Professionalism, and the ABA has this model rule 8.4G. Pennsylvania's adopted it as well, dealing with bias, discrimination in the workplace. And some of the things we've heard uh, are from law schools uh, talking about how rampant discrimination is in law school hiring, um, you know, sexism, racism, whatever it may be. And I'm curious, you know, when you were at Temple, what was your observation? You, you know, was this a problem that you were observing? I know this is totally out of left field, not <laughs> at all what we were going to talk about, but you know, sometimes you just got to go where the interview takes you. Okay. Um, I believe I didn't see that at the levels that other law schools uh, may have experienced that or may be experiencing that. Um, at the time, the law school was under the leadership of Dean Joanne Epps and um, an African-American woman. And she was very intentional, I believe, about creating um, a culture that was the opposite of that. Um, we had a great, a good amount of diversity on the staff and the faculty, um, doing a lot of great things with the law students of, of color and um, in the law school with BALSA and all the other affinity groups. And I believe there was intentionality about that at Temple. And that's one of the reasons why I love being there. And it's my adopted uh, Philly Law School. So um, I, I believe that she was very much intentional about not having that culture exist at Temple. Good answer, bad question. I did not mean, uh, was this an issue at Temple? I meant, oh, okay. was this an issue for Temple students that you were advising trying to get careers in the oh. private sector and in, in for employers? I mean, what I've heard is essentially what I would describe as horror stories of kids coming back from interviews saying crazy shit that these employers or prospective employers have said to them or have done, et cetera. I was more, I wasn't thinking, oh, Temple, you know them. 
uh, not that kind of thing. I'm saying the people that were at Temple trying to get jobs elsewhere. Understood. Okay. So absolutely. Um, that I mean, and that problem still exists. I mean, look at the low percentages of, you know, uh, people of color um, in law firms, in private practice, right? Um, we're still dealing with that issue. So we absolutely had that issue of uh, trying to get our students in uh, law firms and in particularly in the private sector. Um, we definitely in, in Philadelphia, I think, you know, with the uh, Philadelphia Diversity Law Group, PDLG, and some other programs and uh, initiatives that are out there, um, you know, such as what we have also at the Montgomery, uh, Montgomery Bar Association as well, working on those issues. So we have some organizations that have come together to try to combat that. But I do believe that it's definitely still a problem. It's definitely still something that I heard from the law students. And that was particularly something that we were working on with them to help create those opportunities and work with employers um, to be intentional about trying to help with that issue. But it's it's still an issue. And is that something you've experienced, you know, even as a prosecutor, those issues of sexism, racism in the practice of law? Absolutely. Um, you know, I could we could have a whole nother podcast about how many times I was mistaken in a courtroom for anything from the stenographer to the defendant's girlfriend and wasn't allowed at the bar of the court until, you know, I had to convince them that I was the attorney in the room, um, you know, certainly had comments made to me about my gender and what was I doing practicing there as a, a little little girl. Um, I've had that. Absolutely. And you know, I've combated that and I let my work speak for itself. And how do you think that background is going to help you on the bench if, if you think it has an impact? I think it all has an impact. Your life experience and understanding the realities of what exists in the world um, are certainly informative of your practice as a practitioner, but also as a jurist and being willing to admit that these things exist. So that's another part of impact is taking that reality and being intentional about doing things differently. You know, when attorneys come again, when attorneys come in my courtroom or when individuals come in my courtroom, not only me creating an atmosphere that treats everyone with dignity and respect, but also making sure the court staff and the other individuals coming in and out of that courtroom are doing that and adhering to that as well. I believe as the presiding judge in that courtroom, you create that atmosphere. Yeah, I'm nodding in agreement, but it's not a video podcast, so it's not doing much good. <laughs> for the listeners. Uh, so you left Temple, went to become an assistant United States attorney. What was that shift like moving from state to federal practice? It was a huge learning curve, but it was a, a wonderful learning curve. I grew extensively as an attorney um, going from local practice to federal practice. There's some, dis there's some differences, um, and particularly in the writing space and federal practice, there's a, a large percentage of that is writing before you ever get into a courtroom. And so I grew very much so as a writer. Um, I grew in my practice within the courtroom. Um, the way I tried cases at the federal level was it was at a different level from when I was a local prosecutor. And I mean, I, and I had a wonderful experience as a local prosecutor. I learned a lot there too. But in federal practice, there was some differences um, that I think just made me a stronger litigator. Was it mostly that they only take cases that they can win? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to comment on that. Uh, now, what were you in a specific unit in the United States Attorney's Office? Yeah. So at that time, yes, we were um, in specific units. So I was in the narcotics unit. So uh, the majority of my docket was large scale 
drug cases, organizational type cases attached to violence and things of that nature. But I also had uh, a diverse docket that included fraud, bank fraud, tax fraud, um, public corruption. Um, and so I had a, a wide range of experience while I was there. What was your favorite type of case or not favorite's not the right word. What was the type of case to you that was the most interesting to dig into? I love investigations and I love um, working up cases. So I wouldn't necessarily say I had a particular type of case. I think I just found it all interesting and um, wanting to make sure that the evidence was gathered properly, um, that it was gathered well, and that it was thorough. And so for me, that was just anytime I got a case, I just kind of dug in and, and went to work uh, with the agents and the agencies and witnesses and and what have you. So I loved it all. Yeah, speaking of digging in, I'm going to talk about being a judge again for a second, and I want to get into your work in private practice. Uh, there's two schools of thought on being a judge that I've heard, at least from judges. School of thought one is read everything you can about a case ahead of time, be be knowledgeable about the case, come in, understand the issues, etc. And option two is do nothing and come in as a blank slate, you know, know the law and know what your ethics are and how to apply the law and all that, but let the case come to you as essentially a blank slate. Have you given that any thought? And if not, we can cut this whole portion out. Um, <laughs> or you can change your mind afterwards and say that was uh, – I changed my mind. I'm not going to do it that way. But have you given that any thought? I think I'm the former. My thought – I've definitely given it thought. And I'm a person that love, likes to be prepared. Um, and so I probably will take the former approach. But again, I've never been a judge before. So I might get there and you know get to the bench and decide that that's not the best approach all the time. But I also feel like as an attorney, I appreciated being in front of judges that I knew had done the research, had prepared and read the case or read whatever they had to work with and came to the bench with that knowledge. Um, I always appreciated that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, one of the judges I used to be in front of in Western Pennsylvania, it's a Judge Carpenter, and he... Used, that's what he did. He took that approach and then he told us one time in court that he uh, then stopped doing that approach. And at some point in his career, and I don't know if this was just getting on in his career and didn't feel like doing the research anymore, but I suspected it was he thought that that was the better way and then he switched back and forth. So he was it was a very binary, you know, he was either one or the other uh, yeah. approaches. So you're at the U.S. Attorney's Office and then eventually you go into private practice. What, you know, are, you're Montgomery McCracken now, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And did you go there from the U.S. Attorney's Office? I did. What made you decide you wanted to uh, bill hours for a living? <laughs> yeah, why? how did I decide to do it on the back end of the career instead of the front yeah. end, right? Um, I decided that eight after eight years, I had um, done a lot of work at the U.S. Attorney's Office. I had gained a lot of skills. And I believe that it was, again, a time to transition to something different. Um, I realized that the, I had more to give. Um, and Montgomery McCracken was, again, the kind of the right place, right time, particularly for me. Um, the environment at Montgomery McCracken was the right environment for me to transition out of a career of government practice and higher education um, to private practice. We're a very collegial firm. We work together very well. We don't work in silos. So, you know, my first in, in trial that I did at Montgomery McCracken was actually a patent case. Um, so, it, we just look at who has the best skills and we work together in teams. And that's the way I like to work. And um, it's been the right fit for me. I have a great team in the white collar uh, and government investigations group, and we've done a lot of great work. So it was just the right right place for me. 
What was it like trying a civil case and dealing with civil lawyers? Um, to know what the witness is going to say from oh, a deposition beforehand is right? great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was probably the greatest thing. I mean, one of the interesting things for me is, you know, I was nervous about that. But really, you know, there's so many similarities, but just between, you know, in trying a case, regardless regardless of whether it's criminal or civil, trying a case is trying a case. And so it's just, but some of those differences like dealing with depositions and having that at your fingertips before you even go into court to question a witness and being able to prepare your line of questions is just wonderful. Um, so that was probably the biggest difference, but um, it was it was great. It was a, we had a great team. We had the, you know, the patent experts and I came with the trial experience and they taught me patent law and I taught them trying a case and it, it really worked together um, very well. How long ago was that? That was um, January of 2020, right before we all shut down. Oh, wow. Okay. So not that long ago. So you still no. probably remember a little bit about patents. Yeah, I do. We're actually, we're still working on some things. So yeah, absolutely. Oh, a lot it's more just... interesting than I thought. Yeah, it's interesting in the law how you kind of become an expert for three weeks on something and then right. you have to delete all of that knowledge. Right. Uh, so I'm going to move to some lighter questions. The first okay. one is the most important, which is, uh, you know, which you might predict having listened to the other episodes, but it is, what is your position on the Oxford comma? Do you know what it is and do you support it? Talk to me about the Oxford comma. The Oxford comma is the third in a series. So mm. Nicole, Josh, yes. comma, and Dave went to the store. Some people believe there should not be a comma there. I am a strong advocate that there should be. And um, I'm curious now, I'm essentially, and I started an entire podcast just to get legal professionals uh, aware of this and get them to adopt using the third, the Oxford comma. So I'm guessing since you weren't as familiar with it, you might not have a strong position, as, at least as strong as I do, but something you use or something you don't use? No comma. All right. Nope. Well, fair enough. Well, we we had we had been ready to wrap it up anyway, so I guess. That, <laughs> Sorry, that, Josh. That's okay. My mom still laughs at that joke, even though it's the third episode I've made it on. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Listen more and talk less. Ah, uh, Hamilton fan, huh? Mm -hmm. Listen more and talk less. It has served me well. And totally unrelated to that. Uh, what is something that people are obsessed with, but you just don't get the point of? Is it, you know, uh, TikTok? Is it this podcast? You, you just know don't what? Get the point? Why do they keep? That is something I find very interesting is social media has made us all mini Oprah's and mini Dr. Phil's. And I find that's very interesting um, that people are obsessed with making these videos, sometimes daily. Um, it, it's become, you know, IG, TikTok, and all of that. That's just not something I can get into. I I'd love to have conversations like this or face-to-face, -face, but I don't know that I'd want to put my thoughts out every day for public consumption. Well, I mean, keep in mind, you're running for a job where literally everything you say is going to be written <laughs> down. So I don't know if it's too late to rethink that, <laughs> but- uh, But I won't be doing it from Instagram and TikTok. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I don't know if you've, you know, you've seen, sometimes they take these transcripts and then people reenact them when they get really crazy. Don't revive me, Josh. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's something you'll have to worry about. Do you have any superstitions? I don't. In fact, uh, most people uh, get upset with me when I disregard certain superstitions, like, you know, sweeping over feet and hats on beds and things of that nature. I don't do well with those things. Is hats on bed a superstition? 
Yeah, apparently. Apparently it's somebody told me that it's a, a uh, omen of death. And so to wear a hat on a bed or place to put a hat your on hat a bed? on the bed, to place your hat on the bed. Well, that's you learn something every day. So you're just kind of walking down the street, throwing mirrors, walking under probably uh, just to test ladders. it. Yeah. yeah, I'm just I just want to see what happens. Take me to the 13th floor. Yeah, so far, so good. I've made it out. OK, <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, Nicole, where can people find you if they want to learn more about the campaign or more about your career? Yeah. So my website is friendsofnicolephillips.org. And my Facebook page is Nicole Phillips for Judge, comma, Montgomery County Court of Common Pleas. So that's what we're not on IG and Twitter just yet. I'm, I'm working my way there. But those are the two main places to find me. Now, it's a little misleading because your real name is not Nicole, right? That's like an alias. So let's just get my birth certificate and social security card do have Nicole on it. So it is okay. my real name. Okay. okay. It is my second name or my middle name. My first real name is Andrea. So you will often see anywhere it'll say a Nicole Phillips to help people know that I do have a first name. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. <laughs> I, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, we will put those links in the show notes and everyone should check it out. And if you live in Montgomery County, consider Nicole uh, for your choice for judge. And hopefully when I'm in front of you next time, you don't yell at me too much. <laughs> I will be checking your briefs for commas. No. <laughs> yeah. Trust me, I know. I know. All right. Thanks, thanks a lot, for Nicole. having me, Josh. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Interrogatories with Josh Campson. This podcast is a production of the Montgomery Bar Association in Norristown, Pennsylvania. Views expressed during the podcast are those of the participants and not their employers or the Montgomery Bar Association. No content in this podcast should be construed as legal advice. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Interrogatories, which is available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave us that five-star rating and review. For more information, visit us at www.montgomerybar.org.